Life Audio. Hey, welcome to a very special Gospel Rant podcast. We're going through the Song of Songs, typically verse by verse, the greatest gospel presentation in the Old Testament. Um, look, it's a, it's my heart. It's my passion. I've been in ministry for over 30 years, and I'm focused on getting the word out about God's love for the unloved and unlovable people, for the most vulnerable and needy, for the most traumatized. And I pray every day that as God lifts me up, I'll lift him up, and particularly this message of his love for the rejects, the outcasts, the traumatized, the, the ones who've experienced great loss, the addicts, those who have come to find this world and increasingly unsafe place. And you know, I just can't overlook the headlines with mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And I want to make a comment on that based upon the gospel, based upon what we're learning about God's love. So today I want to take a reasonable, non-political look at the mass murder crisis here in the United States. Well, the entire murder crisis here. We stick out like a sore thumb in the world. There's reasons for this. And we Jesus followers do have something that we can say that's unique and can do that's unique to lean in against it. The heart of God has always been towards the vulnerable and his spirit is in us. So this should energize action. No shame, no guilt, not here. I just want to inspire people to look at this issue from a different point of view, specifically related to we Jesus followers. Okay. And look, the world is feeling more of an anxious place, an unsafe place, and no doubt many of you would, would agree. Um, mass shootings are in the news every day. Uh, we're, we're on record pace. But here's the thing, and th- this is what I'm going to uh, jump off of. And this is mostly underreported. Did you know that almost 70%, almost three-quarters of mass shooters have one thing in common? And this is important. This is critical for mass shooters who are aged K through 12, uh, really 11 years and above. The number rises to almost 92% have this one thing in common. Nine out of 10 of our children, teens and tweens who participated in mass shootings shared this, who did the mass shootings, right? For college students, the number goes up to 100%. 100% of college students involved in mass shootings who perpetrated mass shootings shared this. It's, it's incredible. Is it something that can be changed by legislation or enforcement of existing laws or uh, new specific laws? Well, what is it? If you say maybe it's the they, they shared the use of automatic weapons, well, that gets lots of coverage and are devastatingly destructive, and I'll say something about that, but that's not it. Maybe it represents the number of weapons accessed illegally. Not that either. Maybe they had, uh, they were psychotic, uh, technically uh, mental health issues. Um, I'll, uh, a little bit of a nuance, but I'll talk about that. But none of those things reach these kind of numbers. So curious? Stick with us to find the answer to the question. And, and again, why is this so important? Because this is what we can begin to lean into to really make a difference, okay? But first, a word from our sponsors. And hey, do me a favor. Make sure that you intentionally follow Gospel Rant on whatever podcast platform you use. It's very important to us and our programming. And also, 
In this particular case, would you please give me a review of the podcast, either on the podcast platform or email me directly, bill at gospel-app.com. I want to know what you think about this huge social crisis. How do, how do you put it in perspective? And was this podcast helpful for you? Did it move the, the ball forward? And if so, how? Uh, do you agree, disagree? I'm curious in all of that stuff. Bill at gospel-app.com. Okay. We'll be right back after the words from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, welcome back. The numbers of mass killings and mass murders, I mean, you know, I'm not telling you what you don't know. It's growing at a frightening pace. There were on average 29 mass killings per year between 2019 and 2022, on average, 29. Mass killings are those incidents where four or more people were actually killed. Mass killings. We are on pace in 2023 to hit 60. So up for almost double from um, previous four years. As of May 7th this year, there have been 202 mass shootings. Uh, mass shootings are those incidents where at least four people were either injured or killed by firearms, excluding the shooter. So these were uh, shootings were... Uh, it didn't have four more killed. It was uh, four more injured or killed. On Saturday, a shooter opened up at a mall in Allen, Texas, spraying bullets before he was killed by a police officer. On Sunday, a driver plowed his truck into a crowd at a bus stop in Brownsville, Texas, uh, killing eight. Uh, these were the 22nd and 23rd U.S. mass killings in 2023, which sets a, a pace for a very dark record in the United States. Mass shootings, again, are those in which four or more people die, and not including the assailant. In Henrietta, Oklahoma, a registered sex offender shot his wife, her three children, and their two friends before he killed himself. In Cleveland, Texas, a man shot five of his neighbors, including a young boy, after they asked him to stop shooting his gun in his yard. The shooter was arrested after an extensive manhunt. In Baudouin, Maine, a man killed four people in their home and another three on a busy highway. In Dataville, Alabama, four young people were killed and 32 others wounded at a girl's sweet 16 party. Three people were arrested on murder charges. In Louisville, a bank employee murdered five people inside a bank while live streaming the tragedy. By the way, 30% of mass shootings occur in a, a, a workplace. Well, oh my, this has become a weekly, daily, sometimes, occurrence. 
And aren't you tired like me? The usual cries go up from the usual suspects. Some want to further limit access to certain weapons and firearms. Others want to emphasize mental health. Still others want to minimize mental health conversations because it stigmatizes other mental health sufferers. Many want to train and equip police officers to better uh, be involved in conflict management skills. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think all of this... I think these are all complicated and important dialogues with with which reasonable people can get involved. And they have to happen. And we need to come up with some common sense changes. Uh, I, I agree. But I'm going to offer some other suggestions of things that might actually make an even bigger difference. Okay, let me give you data. This is a recent report from the National Institute of Justice, the NIJ. It's a 2022 report called Public Mass Shootings Database Amasses Details of a Half Century of U.S. Mass Shootings with Firearms Generating Psychosocial Histories that Spanned 50 Years. So this report covers U.S. Mass Shootings from 1966 to 2019. All right, don't glaze over on the data. Uh, you might have to listen to this a couple times. I get that. So of the 172 individuals who engaged in public mass shootings covered in the 50-year database, almost 98% were male. Ages ranged from 11 to 70, and the mean age of 34. I was surprised by that. I thought it would have been younger. Those shootings were 53% white, 21% black, 8% Latino, and the rest scattered between Asian, Middle Eastern, and Native American. So the majority, 52% were white and 21% black. Before I answer the lead question that I uh, they opened this, po- this podcast with, I want to mention some other data point that's very specific and very significant and I think makes so much sense. And this is also in the NIJ study. Most individuals who perpetrate mass shootings had prior criminal records at 64.5%. Almost two-thirds. Almost two-thirds, again, had a history of violence, including 28%, 27.9% who were involved with domestic violence. I don't think this should surprise us, right, that people who perpetrate mass shootings have a history of violence, Almost two-thirds of them, almost all of them, had experienced childhood abuse, childhood neglect, violence, and trauma. The term uh, ACEs is used, adverse childhood experiences. I'll mention that a couple of times, ACEs, A-C-E's, and would be described as having PTSD. For one significant study, researchers found an evidence of a cycle of violence among individuals with childhood maltreatment histories, meaning ACEs. Childhood abuse, neglect, exposure to substance abuse, violence, it increases the risk of adulthood crime, which would include mass shooting, right, by promoting antisocial behavior during childhood and adolescence, meaning the roots of this problem we're experiencing today in the United States really goes back 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, and it doesn't show any sign of of, uh, declining. Those adults who were maltreated as children, meaning subjected to ACEs, were more likely to perpetrate sexual and physical intimate partner violence in adulthood compared to their non-maltreated peers. Here's one FBI 
author, exposure of children to stressful or traumatic events, right, ACEs, including abuse, neglect, drug abuse, household dysfunction. Uh, you know that stress and anxiety that, that are in households, such as witnessing domestic violence or growing up with family members who have substance use disorders, has a direct correlation to increased propensity for drug abuse and violence as adults. It's a direct line. The article says 90% of juvenile offenders in the United States have experienced some sort of traumatic event in childhood. And up to 30% of justice-involved American youth meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder due to trauma experienced during childhood. Nine out of 10 juvenile offenders. Nine out of 10. And they go on, quote, violence permeates some segments of society and Most people try to avoid living in communities unsafe for themselves and their families. And yet, every day, youths in certain locations either witness or participate in murders, homicides, rapes, assaults, or other violent actions. Opportunities abound for informed, responsible, and caring adults to recognize children in at-risk environments and provide leadership, guidance, and other help to mitigate the detrimental effect of ACEs. Meaning, Church of Jesus Christ, look... This is where the poor in spirit are today. This is where the the hurting are today in those at-risk neighborhoods. And these are children. They don't don't deserve this. And they're going to grow up to be, unfortunately, violent adults. Many of them, right? Not all of them, but many of them. The propensity is there. And we we can invest in this. We can make social policy, we can make outreach, we can do mission movements, and I know we are, and, and, but we can prioritize this even more. That's all I'm saying. And, and to be clear, if there is an increase in societal violence today, that means we can draw a pretty direct line that families 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, were providing less safe, less loving, less secure environments for their families. And not all families and not all families in every neighborhood at, at all, right? And certainly, I can't imagine a family that actually wants to have maltreated children. But the data points to need for improvements in this area, and, and we can accomplish that. Not perfectly, this isn't heaven, we can lean into that. Certainly, all families, all neighborhoods, with all children involved, can lean into doing better. We need an expanded tool chest. And even in neighborhoods that are rife with violence, there are skills that parents and caretakers can take advantage of to Lean into the creation of a safe place at home and at school, in the playground, in sports, a little or a lot. And and government policy should be to prioritize such at-risk neighborhoods to begin to change things. And I'm not suggesting just provide certain things. I'm saying skills that are required to raise infants, particularly zero to two years of age, skills for parents so that they can attune with their children more. I'll say more in just a second. What we do for today for our toddlers is going to be reflected in 10 years and in 20 years. So back to data. Almost two-thirds of mass shooters were violent criminals with criminal records. Well, expanding beyond just the family, who should be at the table today discussing fresh ideas we can do about that? Well, certainly representatives from the justice system should be there. You know, the, the ones who are actually open to reasonable, smart reforms uh, in our courts, our jails, our prisons. We have an identity crisis that permeates the justice system. And here it is. Are we about punishing criminals, meaning bringing justice to victims that way, or reforming criminals, whatever we 
possibly mean by that? Or are we trying to make the rest of society safer by removing potentially violent people from the streets? It's complicated and strangled by infinite layers of bureaucracy and politics and no doubt racism and no doubt corruption. We should be right now in the criminal justice system. We should be teaching convicted criminals because they're there better skills and techniques to be able to forgive past injustices. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, it's more, but this is a big deal. Very few violent offenders have been taught or given the right skills to even begin to process to forgive the many injustices. Remember the ACEs? That's still in their midbrains, and it's it's triggering. It's causing certain things, and we can reduce, we can minimize that effect, right? It's just how our brain works, no judgment. And that's why one of the reasons we created the forgiving path to give such people a tool. It's to help out all adults and even teenagers to begin to process those past unresolved wounds that they just can't seem to shake, including ACEs. Unresolved hurts increase the propensity for drug use or other addictions, violence to others, violence to self, inability to comfortably enter into healthy relationships and stay there, and other health-related issues such as depression, suicide ideation, and other substance abuse. We put the Forgiving Path online to make it available to even more people, www.forgivingpath.com, www.forgivingpath.com, so that anybody could access it on any smart device. Does it work? Yeah. Uh, It's been out there for a decade. Here's the average results of of over a 1,000 people who've been through it, And this is the results in just one three-hour pass through the online curriculum, the stations. 21% improvement, percent change in the desire to avoid, you know, to not think about the person or institution that hurt you. Uh, 20% reduction in desire for revenge. 20% reduction in three hours. Uh, 38% increase in feeling of benevolence and empathy for the person or persons or institutions that hurt you. 78% increase in in experience of justice regarding the crime committed against you. These are ridiculous numbers. They they are. They're huge in just a three-hour pass. They're not perfect, but they're noticeable. They can make a difference. So listen, if you are in jail or in prison uh, or you know somebody who is and they they have access to online material, tell them about this. If they don't have access to the internet, and that's a that's a reasonable thing going on in, in our jails and prisons, there's a forgiving workbook called Can't Forgive and that doesn't require the internet, and it's all in there. You can get it at gospel-app.com. It's called Can't Forgive. Can't Forgive. If you can't find it, bill at gospel-app.com. You know, I've never met a violent offender, by the way, or addict that can't point to and doesn't quickly point to some event, some injustice, some chronic series of hurtful events, ACEs, right, ACEs that they can't get rid of. They can't shake. They're traumatized by. And they're right. To some degree or another, it is driving their behavior or hindering their recovery. They're responsible for their choices, and yet it's not all their fault. So churches, the forgiving path is sophisticated, biblical, gospel-oriented tool that's useful to teach Christians how to better biblically forgive. And you're going to find it significantly different than other approaches 
I mean, no other approach has these results that I know of. Go to www.forgivingpath.com. If you have any questions, contact me, bill at gospel-app.com. I'd love to tell you more and answer your questions. So am I saying that numbers of mass shooting by violent criminals could be affected by exposing hurting people to a tool with a history of healing unforgivenesses? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, look, you can think of it this way. If Think of it like removing a brain tumor, right? And the difference that would make or removal of cancer from a patient. Those people have new life and new hope. There's uh, Their day seems a little bit brighter. Now, more needs to be done. It's not a quick fix. It's not a single thing that all of a sudden changes everything. But there is change, and it's measurable. It's very encouraging. And there is a foundation then for real reformation. All right? Well, uh, we're going to get to the lead question. But first, one more word from our sponsors. All right, uh, drum roll, please. If <laughs> We're now ready to get to the, the, the lead. Did you know that almost 70% of mass shooters have one thing in common? Uh, for younger mass shooters, K through 12, the number rises to 9 out of 10. For college students, it's all of them, 100% of them over the last 50 years. It has nothing to do with the weapons or the type of weapons or availability of weapons. We need to address that. That's another complicated discussion. We need to depoliticize that. Um, here's the data. Individuals who are engaged in mass shootings use handgun almost three quarters of the time, handguns. Uh, 25.1% use assault rifles of the known mass shooting cases. Um, 77% had purchased at least some of their guns legally. Illegal purchases were only 13% of those committing mass shootings. Uh, so, and to some degree, the, the laws seem to be working. In some cases, in K through 12 school shootings, over 80% of the individuals in the shootings actually stole guns from their family members. You know, it's complicated, but based upon those data alone, I, I do favor state age requirements for automatic weapons purchases. It, it just makes sense to me. Uh, somebody convinced me if I'm wrong, but it just certainly makes sense to me. And I'm, I support also holding parents responsible somehow. Uh, again, state-driven rules and laws. If they don't protect their weapons from their children, these, these seem like low-hanging fruit that have some legal remedy that we can do. Um, and maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe. I, I, maybe. But here's the big fish. What do 70% of mass shooters have in common? Here it is. They're suicidal. They're suicidal. So many mass shootings are death by cop. Nine out of ten of, of, of younger teens. Ten out of tens of college-age adults are death by cops. Here's the NIJ report comments. Suicidality was found to be a strong predictor of perpetration of mass shootings. 30% were suicidal prior to the shooting. An additional 39% were suicidal during the shooting, so that's 69%. Those numbers are significantly higher for young shooters with K-12 students who engage in mass shootings found to be suicidal in 92% of the instances and college university students who engage in mass shootings suicidal 100% of the time. So suicidality... 
is not usually included in the narrow technical category of mental illness. So you'll hear people on the news talking about, well, it's not a mental illness problem. Uh, and by that, they mean the narrow list like psychosis, for instance. So psychosis, by the way, 10% of shooters are diagnosed with symptoms of psychosis. Psychosis is a symptom of several psychiatric illnesses. Individuals experiencing psychosis may have trouble distinguishing which of their perceptions and thoughts are real and which are not. They often see, hear, smell, or believe things that other people do not or have persistent thoughts, behaviors, or emotions that are inconsistent with what other people experience in the same environment or situation. All right, so that person would be mentally ill. And only 10% of the mass shooters were diagnosed with psychosis. But persons who commit public mass shootings in the United States over the last half century were commonly troubled by personal trauma. Before their shooting incidents, nearly always in a state of crisis at the time of the incidents, and in most cases, they engaged in leaking their plans before opening fire. So not psychosis, but uh, troubled, emotionally troubled, and motivated and consumed with personal traumas. I don't know what the right phrase is other than mental illness or mental health issues. Um, These are troubled people. And again, let, let my focus return to healthy family of origins for a moment. If we want to reduce the number of teens and young adults who enter into a mass shooting as a form of death by cops suicide plan in 10 years or in 15 years, we can start by getting better child care skills for infants now in homes. There are clear links to suicide ideation propensities in uh, to, to early childhood uh, adverse experiences, ACEs. So ACEs, once again, such as early childhood abuse, neglect, exposure to violence, and substance abuse have been linked, directly linked numerous stories to underdeveloped executive functioning, meaning the ability to think through things cognitively, distorted physiologic stress response, meaning they trip out and they can't get themselves back to to emotional stability, unhealthy coping mechanisms, meaning they fly off the handle, physical, mental, behavioral health disorders, reduced life expectancy, adult depression, suicide ideation, and substance abuce. ACEs have been associated with markers of diminished life opportunity, meaning reduced education, employment, income. They're associated with suicide, and they are certainly contributing factors to many, perhaps most, mass shootings. And it starts in childhood. It starts in infancy. The leak is so solid that I can say that if we just promoted strategies intentionally and more strategies and, and approaches that that assure that all children and families, no matter the race, the sex, the socioeconomic context, that they have access to safe, stable, nurturing relationships, environments, and have an expanded toolbox. Listen, expanded toolbox for parents, how they can better attune with their infants and toddlers. We should have fewer mass shootings, particularly suicide by cops in a decade. And then the public policy So from a social policy perspective, that would include access to food, access to shelter, access to security, quality childcare and education and early life, but also a widening of parent skills that promote the 
child's early sense of safety, enoughness, and connectedness, particularly in the zero to two-year-old window. I'm a big proponent of the attachment theory. Did you know that if 30% of young parents and caregivers' interaction with their infant was attunement, the child, all other things equal, would enter their next stage of life secure? And by that, I mean happier, more able to make friends and be more successful in school, able to emotionally regulate, won't pop off as much. They'll be less suicidal and less violent. And this is based upon what the parents do largely between ages zero and two. In the first three years of life, something important occurs between infant and mother or other prime caregiver is called attunement. Infants do not have the capacity to regulate their own emotions or deal with distressing events. Researchers suggest that good enough caregivers attune with their child about 30% of the time. Here's Dr. David Arredondo talking about uh, caregiver infant attunement in the first year of life. This mother and this baby are in a process, a form of reciprocal connectedness called attunement. His eyes and her eyes are locked together. No, not locked together, but dancing together, really. And in this child's brain, a thousand connections per second are being formed. And this child is learning to read facial expression. This child is learning about the world. He's learning that the world is responsive or not responsive. He's learning that he can be an object of delight. And that he can delight others. He's learning what he's worth. He's learning what the world is like. He's learning so much so quickly we can't even conceive of it. Well, when a parent consistently fails to achieve this level of attunement with their infant, and and remember, 3 out of 10 interactions, not 9 out of 10 or even 6 out of 10. Good enough is only 3 out of 10. You can mess up 7 interactions. So when, when they consistently fail... Insecure attachments form as the child grows older. You could say that the parent's ability to attune with their child and their experience of attunement, intentional attunement, is the building block of how that child will learn to be connected to others. They'll build healthy relationships and feel safe in this world. These skills are teachable and doable in any context, any socioeconomic context. And I'm going to say more about our free online program, Good Enough Parent, in a moment, but we can give you those skills. And so what happens uh, if there's not good enough mother-infant, parent-infant, caregiver-infant attunement? Here's Spooner. If children are not able to enjoy that shared experience of love and acceptance in a safe environment, then their perceptions of themselves as lovable and acceptable will be impaired. They will develop negative beliefs of themselves that will negatively influence their ability to establish and maintain healthy relationships. Um, Yeah. One person imagined it as a pair of colored glasses. I, I mean, I like that. Here's a quote. I like to use the analogy of eyeglasses with colored lenses to understand how our experiences influence our view of the world and others. Imagine that you're looking at the world around you wearing glasses with blue lenses and that those are the only glasses you ever wore to see. Obviously, your perception would be that the world is blue because the lenses you're looking through are blue. Your perception forms your reality, and therefore, your decision-making and actions are based on your experience seeing the world as blue. Well, in those first two years of life, the child is virtually hardwired to see the experience of their world through a certain color lens. So their brain, if they're insecure, will see the world as an unsafe place, and they're going to struggle to trust others, particularly adults. Does that make sense? 
So that's why we created this free online program, Good Enough Parent, to help parents of children and caregivers of children of all ages, all sexes, all socioeconomic uh, contexts, but pick particularly those with teens and tweens, to help the parents learn skills, relevant, easy-to-access skills that can help their child become more emotionally secure. GEP is sophisticated as a combination of the gospel blended with modern neuroscience and attachment theory. It is easy to watch. It is so accessible, easy to do. When you register, you get 15 short videos, one a day for 15 days, each with a helpful tip how to attune with your child in a way that can just lean against those insecurities and anxieties and struggles that they're having right now. And it's free. Just go to goodenoughparent.online, www.goodenoughparent, one word, goodenoughparent.online. So do we really think that Good Enough Parent can help reduce the possibility of the 92 to 100% suicide by cop? Yeah, that's why we designed it. We think it can make a difference and we've seen it based upon the feedback and testimonies. You can check it out on the, on the landing page, Good Enough Parent out online. But it's up to well-meaning and loving parents to take the tips that work for them and apply them in their context. Every context is different. And this is not just for prevention of mass shooting in the future. Never before in my lifetime have young adults and teens and and children, toddlers, been subjected to more violence and anxiety and, and hopelessness. We could all use an expanded toolbox. Look, let me know what you think. Get this into your church and, and youth programs. You can contact me or have your pastors or church leaders contact me with any questions. Bill at gospel-app.com. And, and make sure that you go to wherever you heard this podcast, whatever platform, and intentionally click follow. We appreciate it. It helps us understand if we're scratching right issues, right? Next time, the gospel rant, we're going to get back to the Song of Songs. And so if you've been following us for that, um, I appreciate your patience. We'll get back to it in the next Gospel Rant podcast. Take heart, child of God. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.